Oh, well, amen. Welcome to Sunday Night Bible Study. As usual, good to see everybody. If you want, you can go in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are in 2 Corinthians 5 through 7 tonight. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, um, what we're going to do tonight before we get into the text is I need two volunteers. All right, I got one and I got two. The first two I saw. All right, give it up for volunteers. So who wants to be God? (laughs) All right, Paul, you can sit here. Great. And you can sit here. Fantastic. Okay, so while they sit there awkwardly and you guys look at them and they sweat, um, let's really quick review what we're doing in First and Second Corinthians. And what we have going on here is Paul is writing a letter, not his second letter. This is his third, maybe even his fourth letter to the Corinthians. But it's the second one that we have preserved in history, the second one in Scripture. And he is writing to his own church, the church he planted, the people he saved, his own. Is this awkward yet? No. His own converts. And what has happened is while he has been away doing various other ministries to other cities, um, some what he calls rather sarcastically super apostles sneak into the church and they begin to boast about how they have better credentials and um, everything about them is better than Paul and they need to follow them and forget about Paul. And the danger to this Paul sees is because Paul was God's chosen representative to the Corinthians. He sees their betrayal of him as a betrayal trail to the gods, the God and the gospel he preached to them. And so they're following these super apostles who are prom- uh, who are promoting the fact that they have letters from people, you know, high institutions that are recommending them to them. So they have letters and they, and does Paul have letters? Um, they have a charismatic personality. Paul, he's kind of grouchy sometimes, isn't he? Yes, we've got the personality, this magnetic uh, charisma that people want to follow us. They, they show off their abilities and then they have this smooth, suave manner of speaking and it's silk coming off their tongue and they are with these tools able to lure the converts away from Paul to follow them. So what Paul is doing is he is writing 2 Corinthians in, in a way like a resume. He is, he is applying, if you will, to his own church to be their pastor again. They unofficially fired him, so he is applying and he's giving them a resume. But this resume is different because where we write resumes and talk about our strengths and why we're an asset to this company or this pro- project, um, they are getting a resume from Paul that boasts about his weaknesses and why he is worse than the super apostles and they're far superior than he is and that they should follow him anyways. And the message of this resume that he's giving to them is, look, they may be all that, but my goal is to be myself, to unmask myself so that you guys can see the true greatness of God through me and not the greatness of myself. And that's what he's doing in 2 Corinthians. So we've been looking at being unmasked, how Paul is unmasking himself to his own converts and the... Um, Super apostles are not unmasking themselves. To the contrary, they're masking themselves. They're putting up a prettier picture than truly exists before them. All right. So with that, we come tonight to the true you unmasked. And he's going to talk a little bit about the Christian's identity. Now, all right. 
Here we go. Okay, so we've got Paul and Melissa. And this is God. Use your imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Worst things have happened, but this is pretty bad. And this is man, humanity right here. Use your imagination again. Okay, so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you a series of questions and you're going to give me the answers. So who won the World Series in 1908? I'm just kidding. Okay, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Chicago Cubs, by the way, last time they won anything. Okay, so. Do I need Google out? <laughs> so here we've, got, here we've got this picture. And many of you have seen possibly something like this before. What we have here is we're going to look at the story of reconciliation, or in other words, the gospel. And what reconciliation is basically, to be conciled means to be friendly or to have an agreement, to, to be in union, union with one another. Um, but to be reconciled means you're coming back to that because somewhere along the way that, that bond was ruptured. And so what we have is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he placed man specially in this creation to be his image to the rest of the creation, to reflect God to the creation, and then to bring the creation back to God, the middle man, the priest of all the earth, the under king of God himself, to take over and have dominion over the earth. And this relationship was good, and it was beautiful, and we had harmony and union. But then, as you know, Adam and Eve decided under the guile of the serpent to do things their own way. Like, okay, cool. God gave us this beautiful place, but only by chapter three, um, we're going to do things our own way, independent of God. So humanity here makes a declaration of independence, what we celebrate, the Bible mourns, a declaration of independence from God. And so if you will just turn 180 degrees in your chair, and this is what humanity does. Perfect. Bring you back a little bit. So humanity now says, I'll do this my own way. Thank you very much. Now, in some, um, in some versions of this, you'll see God now turning himself around, but you're not going to do that because we don't see this in the Bible. We see God always pursuing man, never gives up on man. And so what God's going to do is he's going to tap on man's shoulder and say, hello, yoo-hoo, like that. And instead of turning around and saying, oh my goodness, God, where did I get in this situation? How did I get here? Man's going to put a mask on himself and man is going to hide and man is going to say, I don't know what ha- the woman you gave me and or oh, the serpent did it. And they're going to pass blame and they're going to give reasons why I'm not that bad person, thus furthering the situation even more. But then you can turn 180. Then God decides I'm not giving up on humanity quite yet. So he calls Abraham out of humanity and says, you are going to be the ones, you and your offspring, you're going to be the ones who save the rest of the world. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing and you're going to bring blessing to this world that has seen nothing but curse ever since Adam turned his back. And so a nation is resulting from this chosen Abraham and he's got many, many offspring, as many as the stars in heaven and they've got a mighty king. They even have Solomon on the throne. It seems like Israel is going to be the kingdom of the world. But Solomon turns his back on God and you can do another 180. 
and so do all of his descendants. And eventually Israel becomes just like the rest of humanity in a sort of divorce, in an exile from God. As Adam left the garden, Israel leaves their homeland. And this is now not only where Israel is, but where all of humanity is. And there seems to be no hope. But then, now Paul, what you're going to do right now, okay, is you're going to pick up your chair and you're going to come all the way around and you're going to face Melissa, okay? Ready, set, go. But then God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. And so we have this this thing here where God has been always pursuing man and man's like, nope, I'm going to put on a mask and everything's fine. Abraham hid behind the temple and the law and Adam behind blaming. And, and God can, so what God does is he sends Jesus into our situation, not saying, Hey, turn around now and get right with me. But Jesus is coming to us to get us right. And he comes into our situation. And what we actually see here is that there's been a switch in in roles here that Jesus comes into sin. He comes into man's life. He comes into man's pain. And we have here a woman who has, this is not about you, but a a generic woman who has been with five husbands already is now with a sixth who she hasn't even married yet, but is living with. And Jesus looks at her and says, your problem isn't love. That's just your mask. You're thirsty. And he gives her living water. And then we have also, we have also this, this um, woman who is caught in adultery. And while all the world is putting a mask on for her, saying bad, bad deserves death. That's what the law says. Jesus, once again, enters into her situation, faces her and says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we have a short man who is all about career and all about power and all about wealth, who's turned his back upon his own countrymen. He's taxing them for the sick Roman Empire. And he's lost all of his friends. He's on the fringes of society, but he's got money. He's got power. And Jesus, rather than saying, well, uh, give all that up and then come to me, Jesus enters into this man's situation, faces him and says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree for I want to eat with you today. And when Jesus does this, Zacchaeus comes to the conclusion, wait a minute, I need to give up all of my wealth. Well, he says half. Good, good enough. <laughs> I need to give up and make up and make what is right to those who I've wronged up to four times. And we see this pattern in scripture. Thank you very much. You guys may be seated in your normal seats. Thank you. So we see this pattern in scripture where over and over, I have them do that because these chairs are heavy over and over and over where God is trying to get to man. And so he comes even as far as entering into our situation and talking with people and having conversations and accepting them and loving them and trying to show them the true way. And in their wreckage, in their suffering and their brokenness and their darkness, he is speaking the same words in Genesis one that brought into the world a creation. He is speaking his words into them and a new creation is being birthed and they are becoming people not made of this world, but made of the world to come and that it's a beautiful picture of God who is willing to come even as far as death. Jesus didn't just stop having at the point of having nice conversations. Jesus went down into the grave with humanity 
so that there's nowhere, literally nowhere we can go. As the Psalm even says, 139, even if I make my bed in Sheol, Hebrew word for the underworld, even if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And so that Jesus can pursue us relentlessly to the ends of life itself. That's not going to work. So with that in mind, this is where we look at the true you unmasked in Second Corinthians chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if you will, let's go ahead and read chapter 17, chapter, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So our question right now is what is the old that is passing away and what is the new that is coming? Answering those two questions will define what a new creation looks like. Then in verse 18, all of this is from God. It's not of man who through Christ reconciled us. Now, Paul's talking about him and his team reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, of bringing things back together, people particularly. Paul's situation, yes, man and God, but also me and you, my church. God has given us this ministry. I'm pursuing you so that we can be reunited again. Um, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the new you. <laughs> so what does all of that mean for you? Well, let's look at that. So we've been looking at the masks that we can wear and the beauty and the benefit of unmasking ourselves. Easy? Not at all. Painful? Often, yes. But this is the life that Christ has set us free to live. That we no longer have to hide, shelter, protect, but we can trust and in the first week, Paul was severely distressed over the situation of his congregation. And he unmasks that distress before them, makes himself vulnerable. And because he did so, we saw in the first message, he received the comfort of Christ. And we've learned that sometimes we cannot, we can only be healed to the extent that we've been wounded. Or in other words, I can only let, if I don't let you in as far as the wound goes, I will not be healed as far as the wound goes. And Paul completely, look, it's often we go around life and we don't unmask our distresses, but we go around and we say, I'm fine, I'm good, everything's dandy. Remember how I put up the mask every time we talked about, you know, uh, people ask us, how are things going? The mask goes up. Well, this is, you know, my daughter is now crawling. It's like, uh, 
dodging the attention off ourselves, lest somebody smells the pain or knows the distress that we're feeling. And so Paul learns to unmask his distress. I'm not hiding this. I'm going to let you know exactly how I feel about what you guys have done. And it hurt me deeply. And because he was able to do that through a letter, Titus came back to Paul and said, you won't believe the reception the Corinthians want to give you when you return. And Paul received their comfort to match the hurt of his distress. And then we looked at the unmasked gospel, how we can become unmasked people because God unmasked himself through Jesus. He has made himself known. He's made himself approachable. And that we can now, the gospel, the unmasked gospel is creating an unmasked people that we're to go around and begin to unmask our strengths, our pretend strengths that people can see that we're nothing but clay pots and that we're, we're weak people. As Paul was boasting, I'm a weak person so that the glory of Christ can be seen through my weakness. And now we're looking at the new you unmasked and we've been wearing masks since Genesis 3. For a long time, we've been wearing masks. This isn't an American problem. This isn't a Christian problem. This is a human problem. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, but we don't find that out until Adam turns his back on God. And it is in Genesis 3 where we find that after man rebels against God, That we see Adam and Eve acting in sort of neurotic ways. They're very self-aware all of a sudden. They're very self-conscious. It's as if they know there's a vulnerability suddenly there. And their mind is now fixated on protecting this openness, this vulnerability. So what do they do? They mask it. So we see in Genesis 3 verse 7. I can just read it if you're not a quick flipper. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here um, they suddenly realize they're naked, which is a, it's an image of shame. So they, they feel exposed. They feel open. They feel there's things that should not be seen. And they sew together leaves hastily to make some coverings for themselves. The original mask. Right here, not created by God, created by humans. Interesting. I didn't, it didn't just dawn on me just now that this is the first act of creation outside of God's creation. Whatever that's worth. So they make their own masks here and they cover themselves up. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now we could think of that as your father. When you got in trouble as a kid, where are you? (laughs) And you're hiding in the cupboards under the sink. Or that's not, that's not what God's doing here. Nor is God playing hide and seek with Adam as if he doesn't know. Well, where is Adam? It's only two humans in this place. <laughs> I can, he, he knows where they are. God is giving Adam an invitation. He's asking Adam, where, where is the Adam I made? Who is this Adam covered in leaves? 
realizing he's naked. Who is this Adam? Adam, where are you? It's an invitation to say, oh God, I'm asking. I'm so sorry. We did this. We blew it. We had a huge blunder. No, instead the mask stays on. They go behind trees. God won't find us. He won't know. (laughs) Well, he does know. And he can always see through our masks, by the way. He can always see through your masks, which is footnote. Why I love the Psalms. Now, We get to certain Psalms and we are like, what do I do with this one? Psalm three, Lord, crush the teeth in their mouths. Oh my goodness. Do you know what kind of a beating you need to have your teeth crushed? This is, (laughs) we have a dentist in the house, so we're all good. (laughs) But this, (laughs) but this, this, this isn't, can you pray that? This is wicked. This is God. John cut me off the other day and I pray that you break his leg. Because he deserves it. Um, and good luck, of course, John. <laughs> um, not at all. I mean, that's obviously not a good... But this is what I love about the Psalms. This is unmasking at its finest. This is the psalmist realizing, you already know how I feel about this situation, so why am I going to sugarcoat this? This is, this is how I really feel. And, and so that's... God already knows. He knows. He sees through the masks already. And Adam and Eve were given an invitation but no, instead, more masks go on. And so they got like about a triple layer of masks now. Um, it's what happened. It's, oh, it's, it's not me. I mean, obviously, I'm stronger than that. It's the woman. And then the woman. It's the serpent. And then the serpent. You made me. <laughs> um, they all go down the line. It's nobody's fault. All these masks are going on. And we've been hiding like that ever since that moment. We've been doing the same exact thing. We blow it or we're very aware of a weakness in our lives and we instantly become self-conscious and everything about us, a survival instinct goes immediately to that weak point and says, how do I cover this? How do I hide this? How do I conceal it from everybody else? And right now in this room, there are some of us wearing fig leaves and we're not willing to find the strength of a forgiving God or a forgiving brother or sister, or finding the strength we need in somebody else. We're hiding. We're professional hiders. And so this has been going on, again, since the garden, since the first creation. But anyone who is in Christ, 5 or 17 again, he is a new creation The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So God does what we call reconciliation. And that is in verse 21, where Jesus becomes what we are so that we can become what he is. It's a great trade, if you will. I mean, it's a beautiful trade that we shouldn't reject. Jesus was willing to enter into our situation and be the one with weaknesses and be the one who was so vulnerable, he died upon a cross so that you and I can become in his position so that when the father looks at his people, looks at humanity, he doesn't see everybody as a bunch of people angry at him and running around and trying to murder him, but he sees people as if they are Jesus. Which is mind-blowing because Jesus, when he comes out of the waters of the Jordan River at the beginning of the Gospels, do you know what God says about him? This is my son. 
in whom I am well pleased. And this is what reconciliation does, is it puts the chairs back together, if you will. It puts God and man facing each other like it was in the Garden of Eden, and he has perfect happiness in us. And he looks at us, and he doesn't, "Mm, yeah, you should probably fix that. I mean, of course, there are areas he wants us to fix, but it's not a thing where you should fix that before you come into my presence here. It's, I'm happy that you're in my presence. And it is here, it is here in my powerful presence that we're going to unmask you and we're going to start to fix some of these things in you. This is what reconciliation does. This is what Jesus has done. He has swapped places with us so that we can be like Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what your mask is hiding before God He sees Jesus in you. And you don't have to be fake with him. You don't have to hide from him. You don't have to cross your arms every time you're at some religious setting and say, God's not going to get to me. You don't have to do that anymore. It must be so tiring to be so tense, to be so paranoid, to be so nobody can see this. God is calling us out of the shadows and into the light because he sees Jesus in me, in you, in us. And that is what it means to be a new creation. That is what it means. Look in the original creation of Genesis one, this is where we were with God. And we even walked with him, Genesis 3. In the cool of the day, God's just walking around. Hey, where are you, Adam? Um, This was the relationship. This was creation. But when we turned our backs on God like that, that became decreation. This was Adam ruining everything God had planned everything to be. And so instead of fruitfulness, we find thorns and thistles. And instead of loving brother and sister, we find murdering brother and sister. And instead of... um, beneficial marriages we find uh, polygamy and all the sort we find all these things happening immediately after genesis 3 because of what and this is decreation and now what happens is we are all subject to this old creation we are we are inflicted by it in many ways it affects us the way creation around here does right if there's a famine we go hungry our bodies are wearing out they're getting old things that we get ill we have cavities we have all these things that go on that are this is the old creation and at the heart of the problem of this creation the reason these things are breaking down is because the one who made them all has been rejected from having any involvement in it man said we got it thank you we can do this independence that's, this is now the old creation and we are all in it. And this is what God says is passing because of reconciliation, because Jesus has taken our place and we get his place. God is now letting that pass away. And he's saying, Hey, Hey, we are back together again. This is new creation. And the old creation once hid and it always put the mask on and it was paranoid and it was self-seeking because we were always aware of our, our weaknesses and always thinking about how we can use people to make ourselves stronger. But no, now the new creation says there is absolutely no shame in this relationship. You can be fully unmasked 
And you don't have to keep looking at how you can use and abuse creation for yourself or your brothers and sisters for yourself because you're so terrified about who you are. But now you can go out in the confidence of being a son and daughter of God as part of the new created order coming at the end as part of that, as part of the future walking now in the present. And instead of taking advantage of neighbor and creation, going out and like Abraham, being a blessing to creation and neighbor and benefiting it and people. This is the potential of the new you unmasked. This is what God is doing in us. So there are two pictures that Paul's going to use for the new creation here. What, what does this look like? Uh, the first is that the new creation has an appearance. It has an appearance. And this is sort of a play on words sort of thing. So just go with the concept. It has an appearance. Let's, let's go to chapter five, verse one. So we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay. If you're confused a little bit, Let's just make this simple. The tent is referring to Paul's body, okay? The old creation body, just like the ones you're sitting in right now. The house he's looking forward to, not made with hands, but coming from God, this is his resurrection body. And for a fuller teaching upon what that means, you can get the message from 1 Corinthians 15. You can get the tape from that. You can have that whole thing there. Um So he's looking forward to is a resurrection body, a body that belongs to the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. Um, Not made with hands. That's a that's a Hebrew phrase from the Old Testament. You see it often. It always refers to the temple of God or something eternal of God. Um, For example, something that is made with hands. They always use to talk about idols. They always tag that on and idolatry which they make with their hands. And Paul picks up quite humorously in Ephesians. He picks up on that phrase made with hands. Um, when he talks to the Ephesians about circumcision, he says, I know Gentiles that the Jews think they're all high and mighty because they have circumcision made with their hands. And it's this really humorous jab at them. If you understand the, the Hebrew idea there, he's saying their circumcision has become their idol. They think it's going to save them. So the idea here of something made without hands is means it's something that comes from God. This is not a man-made thing at all. It's something eternal. So, so that's the idea. So now he's going to compare bodies, okay? So verse 2. For in this tent we groan. Now that groan is the same word the Israelites use in Exodus when they're in bondage to the Egyptians. They groaned. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So, This whole nakedness thing is kind of confusing. But what Paul's basically saying is, when I die, I leave this old tent behind. And so I become a spirit, um, a soul. 
Then I will, at the future resurrection of the dead, when Jesus returns, I will receive my new body, my house. Tent is obviously weaker than house, right? House does more. So that's what he's looking forward to. What he's not looking forward to is the intermediate period between death and the final resurrection of all believers. That's what he's not looking forward to is that middle part. Okay. That's what he's talking about. Nakedness. Paul sees that human experience was meant to be had in a body. He disagrees with the Greek notion that freedom is leaving the body and being a floating spirit out there. He wants a body and he believes because Jesus rose in a body that we will rise in bodies at the end. And that's what he's looking forward to. So keep this in mind. Okay. Keep this one argument in mind that he's looking forward to a new body. Okay. File that away. We're going to come back to it. Now, verse 6. So, we are, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, okay. So, there's all these situations that can happen. Either we could stay in these bodies and then Jesus returns and then we get our new bodies and never have to be, quote, naked. Or you're going to be naked. You're going to die and then you're going to be waiting for your new body. Whatever. Um, that's, that's what Paul's talking about there. Either way, whichever situation happens for you, this will happen for all of us. Verse 9. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him because... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we must all appear before the judgment seat. Uh, Many of you have heard the phrase bima seat before, right? Bima seat is simply the Greek word for judgment seat. Um, and it was in there. They, these were in Greek cities. And actually, when you go to Corinth today, there's a little slab like that's the Bema seat. And what the Bema seat did is they had the, the officials of a city would go to the Bema seat to make their public proclamations or to make their judicial decisions. But also the Bema seat was used. Every other year when Corinth had their Olympic Games and the winners were chosen, they would all march and pray to the Bema seat. And there, the one who ran the games, actually the most prestigious title of the city, not the ruler of the city, but the one who ran the games, he would then give them their rewards at the Bema seat. And so many scholars think that what Paul's talking about here, about this Christian judgment, like this judgment, oh no, what's going to happen? I thought that God sees Jesus in me. Um, he's going he's gonna to find out. He's going to unmask me. Then he's going to see all the dirt and all of heaven's going to gasp and say, oh, you did what? I always had these fears as a child. I don't know what my teachers told me. <laughs> um, they, oh, what? They're, and everyone's going to see him. And no, no, that's not what Paul's talking about. At least we, he could be talking about that latter use of the Bema seat in which this is the games are over in a sense. And we're all coming to the seat of Christ, all of his believers together. And he's going to now reward them for the way they manage their bodies on earth or in the old creation. So how much of the new creation did you reflect? Well, here reward, 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 reward. And if we take uh, one of Jesus's parables seriously enough, then we realize that that could even be to the point of receiving cities of rulership. Ken gets eight cities, but I get 30, so. 
So, uh, okay, so what we've got going on, Paul's looking for a new body, and he's looking for the Bema seat of Jesus. And now look with me at verse 16, 5 or 16, and we're going to wrap that together. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Okay, so one translation put that section there. One time we regarded Jesus according to the flesh, and it was a big mistake. And I like that because it really pinpoints what he's saying here. We don't judge people by the flesh anymore. Hey, we did that to Jesus once and we thought him a loser. We said, oh, this guy is nothing. He's no Messiah. He's no savior. And so the Jews and the Romans crucified him. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so that was a mistake. But then, of course, we now we don't judge Jesus according to the flesh anymore because we know that he is so much more than what he appeared to be. Some peasant from Nazareth. Um, he was way more than that. And so Paul here is saying, hey, we no longer judge each other according to what the eye can see, right? Because faith, um, he said that we walk by faith in verse 7 and not by sight. That was thrown in this whole argument here. There's something going on. There's something about the new creation. You as a new creation, there's something about you where there's something more than meets the eye. Your appearance is not just about what people can see on the outside, Your appearance is beyond that. It is about a new body that we haven't seen yet. I don't know how glorious some of you will look when we get there. Some of you may look a lot more glorious than you do now, and that'll be very good. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I wasn't looking at you, though, when I said that. No, it's no one in particular. But all of us think, right, we could all be more glorious. And, hey, Paul would say, don't look at each other this way. And, And what do you hear going on in the back of this argument? You hear the super apostles, his opponents, who march in with their latest in style clothing and their, their charismatic, magnetic personalities and their smooth talk. And they're like, and the Corinthians are like, whoa, Paul was short. Paul needed to shave. Paul didn't speak as well as they. Paul just wore a tunic. These guys, like, this is what he's talking about. He's putting up a defense for why they should not follow these leaders just because they look better. Because listen, their bodies now, but what about the future body? That's, what, that's the one that comes from God. That's the one that matters. What will that look like? We therefore no longer judge each other according to the flesh. Oh, and also the Bema seat. What, it, what kind of rewards are they going to get there? And what kind of rewards am I going to get there? Right? It's not up to human opinion about who is serving Christ the best. It is up to God's judgment at the Bema seat. So Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to think about this. Don't think in a human way. Peter did that once. I was rebuked by Jesus. You're thinking like the devil telling me not to go to the cross because it looks inglorious. So there's an appearance to the new creation. And it's not something that's seen with the eyes, yet at least. And that must be considered. But the play on word here, too, is that the new creation makes an appearance. It is not afraid to appear before God at the end. Remember Adam and Eve? When Adam turned his back on God, Adam went into hiding. But Paul here says, we are all going to make an appearance. We're going to come out of hiding. And these are the kinds of Christians Paul's pleading for them to look to. Look for the unmasked Christians. They're more trustworthy than the we look good. Because we wear beautiful masks. So the new creation has an appearance, but also, secondly, 
Um, it is a temple. The new creation is a temple. So when we become new creations, we become temples. So jump up to chapter 6, verse 14. 6, verse 14. Now, you might remember from 1 Corinthians, some of the Corinthians were doing this double standard thing, sort of like the plural. plural the pluralism in America, uh, kind of blending things together. So they were going to temple celebrations and uh, pagan temple celebrations and um, being Christians at the same time. And Paul wasn't too pleased about that. So now in 614, he sort of picks this back up and he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Rhetorically, the answer to all these is none. There's no connection to them at all. So we are the temple of the living God. Us, you, church, Corinthians, all we are the temple of the living God. Well, this is huge. So in verse 16 continues, and he quotes, okay, he's got, and just for the sake of time, I'm not going to give him, but he's got a bunch of Old Testament verses pasted together in this paragraph, making his case. So he's pulling from all over the prophets and Moses too. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So since chapter 7 verse 1, we have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So the new creation is a temple. That's what happens when we are in Christ and he gives us himself and he unmasks us as we become a temple of God. This is it. Now, this is amazing because we now become that which God had way back here in the garden, man and God together in the original creation, but then the old creation was a separation. But now that man and God are brought back together, there is a restored temple here. And this is what the temple was for Israel, right? As they had their temple, what they would do is man would have a brief moment where, yes, he's a rebellious figure, but okay, I'm going to bring my little lamb and um, I'm going to have a moment with God. (laughs) And this is what the temple represented. Temples, we think of them like, what the heck are temples? Are these old things you go take pictures of as a tourist? No, but it's weird to us, but temples just basically are spaces. A temple is a space where God and man are facing each other once again. So Israel had a building that did that. The Garden of Eden wasn't a building, but it was a garden. It did that. Um, Jesus did that. He wasn't a building or a garden. He was a human being. He was a body. And he brought man and God face to face. And now God is using a group of people to be a temple. Us. And listen to this, okay? It's not only that God and us are face to face and reconciled, and that's the beauty of us being together, but it's that as we go out, we are now becoming the reconcilers to the outcasts and the exiles around us that have no temple, that have no reconciliation, that have their backs turned to God. 
Listen, when Jesus came to earth, right, he did all this hopping around, right? As man turns back on him, Jesus would swap around and come and enter into their lives. But where, where is Jesus doing that today? This poor person isn't going to have Jesus come sit down at his lunch table and say, I see your mask, you can take it off because I'm giving you now my life. He's not doing that today, or is he? And this is where, oh, we are the temple because we are the ones doing this now. We are expanding Jesus, who was the original temple of God. And we're now doing what he was doing. And this is the beauty of, okay, Israel had their structure. And Solomon prayed in 1 Kings when the temple was dedicated. And he prayed, God, let the nations come and be rejoined to you. Let them come and be rejoined. Here's what Jesus said as he made us now his new temple. He sent us out and said, go and make the nations rejoin with me. So that as people at one time had to come to a temple, we are now the temple that goes out to the people. We're a mobile temple that is moving around. And this is what we're doing. We're bringing back the original creation, the new creation. We're new creatures, right? New creations that are fixing this problem of the old creation and we're bringing people man and woman back to facing god and that's us as the temple and as we're doing so we're restoring the image of god in humanity and we're bringing the conditions of the garden of eden back to humanity the conditions of the garden that's what we are as a church we are the garden of eden in this old creation now there is a new thing happening in the death of this world in the weeds and in the in all of the chaos and darkness there is light there is fruit and there is life happening in the people of god and this temple doesn't have walls it's growing and it's moving outward and it's accumulating as many people as it can because we are life in a world of death we are a temple in a world of unholiness That's what we're going out to do. We are Eden on this earth. And that's why Paul says, the more and more that we begin to mimic Christ, we bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Because this is a world of death, but we are the garden. And we're bearing fruit. We are looking the way the new creation is supposed to look. And so, if you want to know what heaven looks like, I don't know. But we do know this, that we see glimpses of it in the temple of God today. We see people willing to sacrifice to uplift a downtrodden brother or sister. That was beautiful. We see people no longer abusing each other, but serving each other, that kind of stuff. We see love. We see peace. We see joy. We see patience and goodness. We see faithfulness. These are the traits, these are the way people behave in God's land. And that's what the church is supposed to be giving little glimpses to. This is the new you. And this is why we can be unmasked because we don't have an old creation to hide. Jesus is transforming us more and more to look like the people of the new heaven and new earth. And that's what we can show. We are new creations. There's a, there's a very, very, very real appearance that goes beyond flesh. It's more than skin deep, and it's beautiful, and it's a temple, and it's going forth, and it is now. Us are now the reconcilers. So what we have then is, um, go back to this. Paul in his church, he saves his converts, the Corinthians in red, Paul in green, and 
there was this harmonious relationship, and then the opponents came along, and these guys got lured. Ooh, beautiful, pretty. Look at their outfits. Listen to how they speak. Well, ooh, ooh, they graduated from where? Cool. Um, and then Paul's like, "What? What is this?" And like, "Sorry, Paul." And uh, then Paul does more than his share of effort writes letters, pleads with them. We see this in 2 Corinthians 2, and he's doing this over and over to the Corinthians. And he's saying, hey, 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 I want us to make it together. Let's get there together. You guys have wounded me, but I love you, and I want us to be reconciled. And Paul is modeling for the Corinthians the way the Corinthians should be to outsiders. But, but, but we're not to be unequally yoked, he said. That's what the temple does. Well, we got to think about this a little bit. We're too simple in this sometimes. When I was in high school, that verse was always, therefore you shall not date. You know, it's like, well, okay. Um, but do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. This doesn't mean simply don't have a partnership with somebody because then we can never actually get to know people and save them. Um, what this means is a yoke was that device that was put on two animals as they would pull a plow. What this is saying is don't be unequally yoked is, okay, let's not tag team so-and-so. Yeah, we can do this together. We can uh, move the church forward. And so-and-so is not even a Christian. Yeah, let's pull the plow together. Why not? You're a very attractive man. I mean that in a, um, So they go together, but here's the problem that Paul sees is this can't work because one person has one set of agendas and this person has another goal and they're going to start to pull the plow in two separate directions and nothing's going to get accomplished. That's what he's talking about. So Corinthians, stop having your celebration, your meat fests in the pagan temples and saying, yeah, cool, we can get this job done together. And then you're over here like, oh, hallelujah, we're Jesus Christians. And this isn't going to work this way, okay? Paul's saying, look, We can have the unbeliever sitting next to us in the church. We can have the unbeliever at our table in fellowship with us. We can have a homosexual in this building. That is not against Paul's scripture there. We can have all of this happening. And I hope that if that happens, that we applaud as loudly as we applaud the fact that... um, um, Whatever. That we would applaud that and not be weirded out by that. Um... So all this can happen, and that's good, because people need to visit the temple of God. But we're not to just say, hey, you've got a great mask on. It's got the right looks, the right vibe, the right ideas. Let's yoke ourselves. That is not to be done. Only those that show the new creation of Christ are to be yoked in moving the church forward. That's what that's saying. Therefore, yes, go reconcile the world to Christ. Go Go meet them, greet them, eat with them, love on them. You're not yoking yourself. Don't be so paranoid. Did you know light always beats dark? Unless you let dark win. But you're going to go out and Jesus touched the unclean and he didn't become unclean. They became clean. That's how it works. And so Paul wants um, the church, he, he pleads with them, please go reconcile yourselves Uh, with me and with the rest of the world. So let us be like Jesus in the way he relentlessly pursues humanity and doesn't quit, continually going face to face with them saying, let's reconcile. Let's be a temple that embraces the praises and glory of God and says, hey, welcome. (laughs) Um, Let's 
and let's let that temple move. It's not here, Sunday night Bible study. This is not a temple. You are the temple. And listen, when you step into work tomorrow morning or whatever you got going on, guess who's there? You're a temple. You just made that office holy. Not everything that goes in there may be holy, but you just brought holiness into it. And that can be powerful if we live up to the new you. So go ahead and unmask who you are in Christ.